welcome to Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Alexandra L. Klein, Visiting Assistant Professor of Law at Washington and Lee University School of Law. We will discuss her article, Non-Delegating Death. So welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you on. Um, I was really impressed by this paper, um, which I never thought about death penalty law in the way that you presented or through the lens that you presented. So uh, congrats on writing a really great piece. Thanks. Um, I It was a, a lot of work, but I really enjoyed working on this paper. So for listeners like me who may not be that familiar with the non-delegation doctrine or maybe not ever heard of it before, I wonder if you could say a little bit about what the non-delegation doctrine is and what it was created to accomplish or what it's for. Um, Sure. So the non-delegation doctrine comes from the... um, the concept of separation of powers, right? The the U.S. Constitution vests um, the executive, legislative, and judicial branches each with their own powers. And um, my paper discusses that most state constitutions have fairly similar clauses. Um, the non-delegation doctrine is based on the idea that that preventing tyranny, these powers need to be divided rather than accumulated by groups. Um, And this is one component of separation of powers is non-delegation. So under the non-delegation doctrine, um, legislatures can't delegate their essential legislative functions to other government bodies. Um, I, I think this is most familiar to people from the 1935 cases um, the putrid poultry case, ALA Schechter Poultry Corporation, and um, Panama Refining Company, which are the, the only two cases where the Supreme Court has really applied the non-delegation doctrine. And both of those cases concluded that Congress had given far too much power to the executive branch to make certain decisions. Um, since that time, the doctrine has been mostly dormant in federal courts although every now and then someone wants to resurrect it. Um, it's been discussed a lot by scholars and with varying proposals to use it, apply it. Some people say it's already in effect. Um, but state courts do have this doctrine as well, and they tend to use it more frequently than federal courts. Mm. Well, so in the paper, you used a very funny quote from The Princess Bride to sort of illustrate the current state of the non-delegation doctrine. I wonder if you could use that metaphor, because I I thought it was actually really helpful in sort of understanding the point you were trying to make about it. Oh, sure. So it's it's one of my favorite scenes in The Princess Bride, possibly everyone's favorite scene, Um, when they go to Miracle Max and with with Wesley, who's apparently dead, and then Miracle Max explains that He's mostly dead, but mostly dead also means slightly alive. Um, So recent developments at the Supreme Court suggest that maybe the non-delegation doctrine could be slightly alive. Um, In a recent case, Gundy versus United States, four justices held that the um, uh, uh, SORNA didn't violate the non-delegation doctrine, and Justice Alito joined them only in the judgment, but he indicated he might be willing to revise his opinion on this with a majority. And Justice Gorsuch wrote a 
very interesting separate opinion discussing the non-delegation doctrine. Um, And then recently in a denial of rehearing, Justice Kavanaugh indicated that he might also be interested in revisiting the non-delegation doctrine. So when I say it's slightly alive, it's possible the doctrine could get revitalized in some way by the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, it struck me uh, that another quotation might be uh, appropriate under the circumstances, uh, sort of, uh, news of my death is greatly exaggerated, right? <clears throat> well, I mean, that's a, a, a pretty substantial debate among um, a lot of, of scholars on whether or not the non-delegation doctrine is alive, whether it's dead, whether it's been retooled as, as into some other kind of analysis that lets courts do some of the same things. Um, that was a point Justice Gorsuch was making in his dissent in Gundy. He pointed out that that uh, the court checks Congress on its enactments through other kinds of doctrines, such as vagueness or the way courts interpret statutes. So in your paper, you talk about delegation in the context of criminal law and the death penalty specifically. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the sort of history of delegation in that context and why you think it's especially problematic in relation to the purposes of the non-delegation doctrine. Sure. Um, so there's a lot of, of really interesting research and scholarship on decision-making and responsibility in carrying out, um, you know, uh, executions and state-authorized killing. Um, So there, um, in my paper, I I discuss historic and modern execution practices that involve delegation from executive officials who carry out executions. So for example, in medieval England, um, there was a practice in which some convicts could have their sentences commuted or pardoned if they served as an executioner. And this carried over into colonial America. Um, So where the sheriffs are responsible for carrying out executions, they would hire someone to do it or they would tap a condemned prisoner at times. Um, And you know, the, in the death penalty stories about um, the execution of Willie Francis in 1946, um, one of the executioners who was involved in this electric chair execution was actually an inmate. Um, so these, these kinds of, of passing responsibility to someone else within the executive branch or even someone outside the branch who'd been sort of tapped in to conduct the executions has kind of carried on. Um, you know, hanging uh, is not really a good way to kill someone. Um, if the drop's too short, someone can suffocate to death. If the drop's too long, you actually risk decapitation, either complete or partial. Um, and so um, some of the research, some of the, the research that I did and, and some of the scholarship discusses ways in which executive officials um, came up with automated systems that would allow criminals to hang themselves or kind of put mechanical implements in between the, the executioner and the person who was being killed to sort of distance them. Um, 
And this really kind of carries over in, in current execution practices. Um, I talk about, I, I refer to these as responsibility shifting mechanisms, but they're really, I, I think, and I, I think that's the right characterization. Um, they seem to be a way for participants and executions to delegate either mechanically or, or to another person this task of state-sanctioned killing and shift sh accountability or at least inject doubt into the idea who is actually conducting this killing. Mm. Well, so in the paper, you distinguish between delegation with respect to who can be killed and why they can mm -hmm. be killed from how they're actually killed. And I wonder, have courts looked at delegation in those two contexts, the sort of when the death penalty can be imposed and how the death penalty can, can be imposed? Have they looked at them differently? And if so, how? Um, so the, a handful of inmates have um, filed, have sued in various cases, and they've, they've brought suit in different states, um, alleging that state, a state's method of execution statute, which usually just sets out, you know, the method of execution is lethal injection. They don't say lethal injection necessarily um, quite out there. It's usually like the injection of a substance or substances sufficient to cause death. So inmates have argued that these kinds of vaguely worded statutes without more delegates um, legislative power to the Department of Corrections, which is usually the agency that creates execution protocols. Um, for the most part, courts have rejected these claims in part because they've decided that what well, one of the justifications courts use, that it's the legislature has sufficiently set a policy that guides the agency by authorizing the death penalty and generally supplying a method. Um, so I mentioned earlier with the non-delegation doctrine, a, you know, legislatures can give agencies the power to make decisions and carry out functions. Um, it's kind of necessary, right, in the society that we live in. Um, but the legislature has to set these fundamental policies and courts have really relied on the notion of capital punishment itself being almost sufficient for a policy rather than thinking too much about how executions are carried out. Mm. So it was my impression from your paper then that effectively courts have said, well, so long as execution is permitted within a state, then we can rely on the decision to kind of have execution as a policy as kind of a proxy for any kind of need for leg legislative policy about how that execution is going to be is going to be accomplished. Why do you think that's a problem? Um, well, so it's, I wouldn't say it's quite as broad as, as long as we've authorized the death penalty, there's, there's no limits. They've usually said, you know, and you picked a general method. Um, I find this, I, I find this problematic because A, I, I think there are very different policy interests at stake in, in the decision of who's eligible for the penalty, which is its own 
Um, there's some, some arbitrary concerns about that issue that, that still persists today and how we carry out these sentences. Um, this is, is, you know, whether or not someone agrees with the death penalty, it's state authorized killing, right? It's, it's the state's decision that somebody is not worthy of living and their life should be taken. I'm concerned about this, these kinds of delegations, A, because I think it's, it's an enormous decision that a legislature should not be handing off, and B, agency, corrections agencies often, and death penalty protocols are often really not terribly transparent or even transparent at all. Um, this is really well documented. In, um, in terms of getting access to the kind of information. Um, agencies have very few restraints in creating these protocols. Um, there, for example, I mentioned in my paper, a lot of state corrections agencies aren't subject to Administrative Procedure Act requirements within their particular state. So, and then they also have laws that exempt them from State Freedom of Information Act um, laws. And, and so it's not entirely clear what's, what's happening, how these decisions are made. Um, and other scholars have done really remarkable work in demonstrating that um, agencies really don't necessarily have the, these kinds of expertise in crafting execution protocols. Um, one recent example of this is, is Oklahoma. Um, so they'd had a, several problematic and, and botched, really awfully botched lethal injections, um, including the execution of Clayton Lockett and execution where they used the wrong drug and didn't find out about it until they were preparing for another execution. Um, Oklahoma then switches to, authorizes nitrogen hypoxia as a method of execution and then announced it's just going to start using nitrogen hypoxia, but there's no there, there's no authority for the you know the the agency to make that decision. There's nothing in the let and there's nothing in the statute that made it clear what they they had to do in order to start changing around methods of execution that were authorized. Um, and then you know very recently, I think last week, Oklahoma announced that now it does have suppliers for lethal injection drugs. Um, and so it's gone back and forth, but it's it's not clear how this decision making is is taking place. Um, and to me, that seems to be very problematic in a constitutional society that really values procedure and decision making. Mm. Well, so what kind of policy guidance do you think legislatures ought to be required to provide to states in order? in relation to execution methods in order to avoid the kinds of non-delegation issues that you're concerned about in the paper? Sure. So I, I think one, well, one way to think about this is to look at the, the only case where a non-delegation claim worked, which was um, in the Arkansas Supreme Court. And in that case, in 2012, um, the Arkansas Supreme Court's struck down the entire state method of execution for violating the state non-delegation doctrine. Um, and the, the, the statute 
had provided a list of drugs, but the court said that it wasn't sufficiently a clear statement of policy because it, it was a list of things that they could use um, and then a kind of a catch-all or clause where it was like, and anything else is fine. Um, they subsequently upheld a statute that actually provided some specificity about the kinds of, like the classes of drugs um, that could be used, such as, you know, benzodiazepines, paralytics, um, potassium chloride. Um, so I think legislatures could and certainly should give more consideration to the kinds of drugs that are being used, whether they want to use a single drug or three drug protocol. Um, I mean, I, I think the fastest solution to this issue is to just abolish the death penalty, but no one's listening to me on that one. <laughs> right. So, I mean, from a policy perspective, then, do you think that legislatures need to be providing agencies with, like, guidance about what sort of concerns or values or sort of issues might be relevant to deciding on one execution protocol rather than another in order to help kind of inform agency decision-making about, to, to, for better or for worse, like how best to go about killing people? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they should. You know, I, I think it's easy for, for legislators to be, a lot of legislators are often enthusiastic about the death penalty um, or, or keeping it in place. But I do think that there there could be areas of more specific guidance. I mean, I don't think legislatures should be writing detailed execution protocols. Um, I think that's going way too far, especially because there are any number of contingencies that are involved in conducting executions. Um, but there are, are, you know, as, as I point out in my paper, there are statutes that provide that, you know, the execution, the, the death itself should be swift and as painless as possible and humane. Um, there are, are legislators that have written execution statutes that provide for specific classes of drugs. Um, you know, there are are statutes that have more details about execution protocols and policies that I think provide a greater guidance to the agency. Um, you know, for example, Tennessee statute, which has its own problems, at least that statute indicates when, you know, the Tennessee, Tennessee can, the Tennessee Corrections Authority can switch to a different method, what has to be found for them to do that. Um, so I think that those are, are things that would be helpful to agencies and arguably helpful to, um, you know, inmates who are, are, are dealing with this litigation issue and also trying to settle sentences. Um, in one of the cases I discussed in my paper, Cook, um, the... Arizona Department of Corrections had a practice of swapping its protocols often at the last minute. Um, in one case, the Arizona court pointed out they did it 18 hours before an execution. And while the court didn't find a separation of powers violation, they actually came really close and they didn't necessarily do it on legislative delegation grounds. What they concluded was the amount of discretion that the Arizona Department of Corrections had 
actually threatened to violate separation of powers because it was undermining court's ability to do judicial review. Um, and they didn't find a violation, but they more or less said, you're on very thin ice right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, so I was surprised by the Arkansas example that you pointed to in the paper, because, you know, when I think of states that have judiciaries that are, are kind of political climates that are opposed to the death penalty, the Arkansas is not one of the first that comes to mind. Um, so I, I kind of wonder, I mean, do you think that that, driv- that decision was driven by concerns within the Arkansas Supreme Court about non-delegation principles more broadly and less specific to the death penalty uh, or, or not? And, you know, to what extent do you think this kind of renewed interest or sympathy to non-delegation principles is sort of likely to drive future concerns or kind of future obligations in the context of uh, death penalty protocols? Sure. Um, with the Arkansas Supreme Court, I think it's it's really hard to say. Um, a few years later, they upheld, as I said, they upheld a a much more precise version of the statute. And so, you know, to the extent that a majority of the court was really concerned about a non-delegation issue, that suggests that 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 was the case. Um, A couple of uh, members of the court dissented in the the second case and wanted even greater specificity in the kinds of drugs. So it's hard to say whether that was due to judicial concerns about capital punishment or or real concerns about separation of powers problems. Um, It's always always hard to say with that kind of thing, but I I know it's a lot of fun to to sit and kind of speculate sometimes about what's driving some of these decisions. Um, You know, the the, the extent that there's renewed interest in the non-delegation doctrine, I think could be helpful. There's really great scholarship on administrative law crimes um, that, you know, more, more thought about separation of powers, I think would, would certainly be helpful in that context. Um, Do I think it's likely that, you know, people, that the justices on the Supreme court would think that non-delegation is a good reason to uh, strike down the death penalty? No, (laughs) I don't, I think I'm, I don't think anything like that would happen. But, you know, with the recent um, federal execution protocols, that's a a really interesting issue that's kind of related. So the federal execution protocol statute, uh, the federal death penalty statute rather, provides that a person sentenced to death under federal law will be put to death the same manner as the state where they're sentenced in and if that state doesn't have a death penalty, then um, the judge would, at trial would pick a different state. Um, and so there's this really interesting litigation going on right now. Um, there was oral argument in the D.C. Circuit over this recently about whether or not the Attorney General of the United States has authority to create a federal execution protocol. Um, so I, I certainly think that these, these issues are relevant. Um, I think the decision on how to kill someone is really important 
maybe not as important as the decision of who we kill or whether or not we should kill anyone at all. But I, I think it's a really significant decision because I think it says a lot about the, the society we live in. Um, you know, I, I note in my paper, it's possible that the subject, that courts, courts that have strong non-delega, state non-delegation doctrines um, have upheld these really broad delegations. And I've, I've thought maybe that could be due to, you know, the subject matter. Um, and, and maybe it isn't, but it's, I think it's very easy to not want to think very much about how we kill people. It's, it's not a really pleasant subject. Mm. Well, so as a practical matter, what could legislators do to avoid some of the non-delegation problems in the execution protocol context that you discuss? And how could courts go about sort of holding them to account? Like what should courts look to specifically in order to kind of assess whether or not these kinds of non-delegation problems are present? Sure. So, I think so when you do an, when you analyze a non-delegation problem what you're looking at is the extent to which policy is left often to be determined by the the agency right um a lot of state non-delegation doctrines really focus on whether or not the legislature has made the policy or the agency has made the policy um you look to whether or not agencies are engaged in fact finding um if they've been given the, the choice of decisions in a contingency that's been specified. Um, I think that, I think that courts that are evaluating these things can learn a lot from, you know, the, the, what I, I perceive as, as problems in court decisions that have upheld delegation. Um, often there's a tendency to rely on the fact that other agencies have, other courts have, permitted it so you know this seems fine um but i I think when when courts really evaluate state method of execution they should look at whether or not the there is any guidance other than you know you know someone should be dead um and, and a general way of doing it um you know some of the courts that evaluated it and concluded that the delegation was fine, pointed out that other methods hadn't, you know, required greater specificity, such as hanging or the electric chair, but methods like lethal gas or, uh, or lethal injection require a lot more complicated decision-making and expertise in, in making these assessments. And, you know, to the extent that legislators can provide greater, greater transparency and governance, I, I think that would be a good thing. Um, I, I do think that, it, you know, these agencies should be subject to administrative procedure review um, in these decision-making tasks, because, in making these decisions. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of transparency in government, uh, <laughs> but I I don't think that, I also think that courts should be attentive to the absence of procedural checks um, because one justification for permitting delegations is that, you know, agencies are subject to procedural checks, but when they don't have these kinds of procedural checks or any oversight, a a lot of 
have this issue of you know, constitutionality of, of certain methods, um, whether they cause pain, ends up being litigated substantially. Um, and, you know, the record really gets, I, I, at this point, you know, the state spends a lot more time in the litigation trying to justify a decision made. Um, I also think courts should be a little suspicious of, you know, protocols that are, are really kind of copied from other jurisdictions. Um, you know, we, we tend to encourage experimentation and laboratories of experimentation here in the United States. But a lot of method of execution statutes and protocols are really substantially similar. Um, and agencies, you know, will copy other agencies' protocols um, and learn from other agencies. But the problem is, is if you're starting from a, you know, a limited base of, of guidance from the legislature, then what we have is um, a system that doesn't really have any internal any internal or external procedural checks. Mm. Well, so Alex, in closing, I wonder if you think that obligating legislatures to kind of reflect more deeply on the policy choices and goals behind the execution protocols that their state is going to use might affect in any way the way that legislators think about the legitimacy of the death penalty itself? Um, that's a really, that's a really good question. Um, I like to think that, that it would be the case. Um, there are substantial numbers of articles and letters and memoirs written by people who've been involved in executions, um, either as prison guards, as executioners, as wardens, as attorney generals authorizing the penalty, who have said that this, this hands-on experience convinced them that the penalty shouldn't exist anymore, um, that, that we shouldn't be using the death penalty. Um, I think that, that the legislative willingness to, to authorize the penalty and, and give so many details to the agencies isn't a bug in the system. I think the problem is that it is part of the system. Um, and I think it's a flaw in, in the system. I think legislators should be required to spend substantial time really thinking about this um, and learning as much as they, they can about this really momentous decision. Um, you know, there's no question that crimes that trigger capital punishment are terrible. Um, but errors in, in conducting capital punishment and things and things that under decision making that undermines a the separation of powers are truly problematic. Mm, yeah. Well, Alex, thanks a lot for coming on the show. This is a great paper. I, I really was, um, you know, I learned a lot and I really was impressed by, by the scholarship that went into it. So congratulations. Um, thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you.
Oh, Lord. Oh, Lordy. 